With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're home alone. You have an uneasy feeling in the darkness. Like someone or something is watching you. Why is it suddenly cold in this room? You hear footsteps, whispers, or even laughter. <laughs> You go to check. You feel a presence behind you. And then the fear sets in. I'm K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. James and I have been paranormal investigators since our teens. We just weren't in our teens at the same time. Um, but James and I were members of a group uh, based in, in Rhode Island, Woodstocket, Rhode Island. He was our tech manager. And I, I've known James. I, I met him around that time. And he was, he'd heard of a case on which I was working that had real demonic leanings to it. And this is before demon demonology was popular on the television. As you cited, now it's... Uh, parlayed around you know there's uh, everything's got to be demonic because viewers won't turn, tune in unless they think it's demonic or something you know that that's more in vogue now uh, so james and i have a mission with duo demonology duo demonology is james's brainchild we contribute more or less equally except he finds out where we're going to go and he does the driving but uh you know but we're both it, it's a work in progress always will be our mission is to legitimize demonology. Now, that's an oxymoron right there. Legitimate demonology sounds like a very archaic term, but we're starting the work that was actually begun in the 16th century, and we're propelling that into the 21st century and really trying to establish this as something to take seriously, as something that can work, in, and uniting it with psychology. Again, it seems like a contradiction in terms, you know, parapsychology, psychology, but it really isn't a conflict. So, you know, because people do suffer from these things, they term it demonology because of the lack of a more medical-sounding term. And uh, there, there is a purpose for it, and we're just trying to make it very real and very understood. Uh, yeah, there is a preponderance for people, you know, the shows, television shows and movies portraying demons and demonology of course associated with demons now our definition of demonology for duo demonology purposes is the systemized study of the lore and cultural traditions of wicked spirits so you don't need to be an occultist or you know be looking around for demonic possession to be a demonologist it can be academic and can be scholastic we try to incorporate the best of both worlds uh, Academic and applied demonology. Applied is when you really counsel people and find out what their issues are and try to try to get them through it. You know, benefiting from our experience. 
So, but demon demonology sells and demons sell because with the advent of that nifty uh, book, The Exorcist, in uh, 1973, and then the next year, 1974, the movie comes out, The Exorcist. Now, that pretty much defined our modern concept, our present concept of demons and, you know, demonic possession. It's drawn from an actual case, and it uh, uses uh, the criteria, the movie and the book use criteria of demonic possession that was actually cataloged back in uh, the Renaissance time in the Middle Ages, you know, invading spirits. Of course, they didn't employ any of the psychology back then. Um, so that really defined what people think of as demons. You know, you think of Reagan, Teresa McNeil, and the exorcist being the 12-year-old girl being possessed. That's what we think of. Demons, generally not beneficial to people. <laughs> if, if there are any demons that don't hate the human race, I haven't heard of them because they just don't make themselves apparent. Uh, so that, and again, that's what we're trying to do to say demonology is just, it isn't just superstition. It's a study. And we're advancing that study to the best of our means. And we draw on people's real life experiences. And uh, most of our, uh, I don't know if I should say most, many of our, our clients or people who contact us are already convinced it's a demonic haunt because if it's scary, if it's inconvenient, well, of course, it has to be demonic. It's not angelic, you know? but there's so many issues to address. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's basically what we do. James and I met back in, what was that, uh, 2009? I think we, we hooked up and, and we started working with a group called uh, Beyond the Veil Paranormal Research and a uh, tech manager. And then the group dissolved. People basically relocated and it lost its gravity. So James and I would run into each other. I assisted him talking at a lecture, I remember, like a, a year later. And we would run into each other at conventions. And then James and I met at the uh, Ocean State Paranormal Conference, Ocean State Paracon, back in 2000. That was August 2018. And James had a concept. He wanted to get together and form something where we both worked together. And he sold me on it when he came up with this nifty moniker, Duo demonology. Now, how you can get better than that? If we were trio demonology, it just wouldn't have the same ring to it. Or uno demonology, mm -hmm. but duo demonology. I said that's something I can go for. You know. And James and I don't always agree on well methodology. We pretty much do actually. I think we're totally in sync on that. We have different ideas, you know, on concepts. And mine, mine are always changing and evolving anyway. And I think James's are too. But it's a dynamic group. It's uh, the duo dynamic demonology. So, um, and we're there to be contacted if people have need. And usually we have to explain who we are and what we do when someone contacts us. You know, we're not going to come in our van and uh, drive away the demon. We're not, you know, Roto-Rooter or the uh, paramedics. Well, you know, it's, I, I use that term, paramedic, paranormal paramedics. That's what a lot of people are looking for. Paranormal paramedics will come over, we'll save your life and get your head clear. And usually it takes, or often it takes as long to get better as it took to get sick, so to speak. You know, this is a gradual process when this, you know, demon problem comes on. If some people have adjudicated as demonic and basically a negative influence, we try to sort that out. I prefer to say negative influence, but hey, demon. Well, the, that was the long-winded nature of uh, demonology in, in the modern world and where it's concepted from. And uh, 
You know, I think in the same token where Carl and I come from, you know, I've been in the field for 16 years. Carl has been in the field for 49 years. Carl has a long lineage of, of history within this field. You know, of course, he grew up in a haunted house, which was de- depicted in an episode of A Haunting. And then also, of course, gradually learned from that with his brother, uh, uh, Keith Johnson, who is his twin and also a fellow demonologist, where they, of course, eventually um, both were part of a group called Pyro out of Rhode Island College, where um, they were once contacted by a Carolyn Perrin, um, which is now famously known as the Conjuring House, aka Ron Top Farm in Harrisville, Rhode Island. And then from Carl and Keith from there, uh, eventually was on the first two seasons of Ghost Hunters, and they've since then have a long lineage of being paranormal investigators and as well demonologists. Um, while myself grew up watching Ghost Hunters and many shows beforehand and knew of the Johnson brothers and of course uh, people like Ed and Lorraine Warren and then Father Malachi Martin, Father Gabriel Morris and so on. Um, have only been in the field for 16 years. Um, and um, it was a very fascinating interest. You know, I didn't grow up in a haunted house like Carl and Keith did, but I grew up with a haunted past, which kind of uh, threw me forward into wanting to understand God. And um, with that search for God was the search for ghosts and spirits and demons and angels, because I felt like, as maybe probably Carl did, and that kind of thought pattern, if I could understand what ghosts are and demons and angels and all these other preternatural forces are, maybe there's a better understanding of what is life after death and what maybe kind of controls or looks upon humanity. Um, so we, we have different upbringings and how, we, how we've come across it, but we both have that same love and tenacity of, of why we're doing it and where we're at now. Um, and like Carl said, you know, we are trying to take take it from the archaic ages of King James and demonology to the modern sense where now we're not burning people at stakes and hunting people in the sense of like King James did. But we are um, looking at it in a different microscope where we're saying, OK, we understand modern science to the degree of psychology and, of course, what, what is possible in neurology and many other sciences that can be incorporated into modern society. And we try to look at it in an umbrella sense. Um, and uh, I think Carl gave a great explanation of what we do and why we do it. But yeah, we both have different upbringings and uh, it's fascinating to have, like Carl said, have come together and, you know, once I was a tech guy, now I look at things differently. You know, Carl, you've been involved in all these paranormal shows. I know you watched them. Um, you know, both of you guys watched them. But, you know, it seems like everyone, I love them, you know, I really do. But I hate every time uh, these hauntings, they say they're demonic. And it is for, you know, just trying to get eyes on the show, just to, you know, sensationalize some of these stories. But I think that sometimes I want to ask you in your opinion, working behind the scenes, do they, if, if the person that is suffering from the haunting and they, they may say, you know, listen, I don't think it's demonic, you know, and you guys want to call it demonic. I mean, are there, is there ever any static between the person whose story is being told and the production company? 
telling oh, the story. Sir, are you talking about like television play? Yeah, television uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I think that's inevitable. Uh, they have a production to do if it's a production company doing it for television. They have their schedule and they have certain criteria. They want to present a dramatized story, you know, with a definite beginning, then the drama, the occurrences, then the finalization, the resolution. And real life isn't quite like that. Real life, it takes a long time for these influences to take hold of somebody's life and interrupt their productivity. And uh, then it's an ongoing process and it doesn't always have a definite resolution. Sometimes that takes a while. But the production company want, okay, problem. You know, the heroes come in, solve it, and everything's fine then. Or they're driven out of their house, whatever. So, yeah, we, we try to reconcile it and understand their needs. Uh, you know, you have to tailor it. If it's a television show, that, the reality has to be tailored for the production to, to a degree, as long as it doesn't totally misrepresent it. Yeah, gotcha. but it, it works out somehow. I want to I discuss some of your early... Um cases i mean we hear about it being rare at least i do i hear about you know true demonic influence in a home or in a person is so rare you know it's just rare <laughs> you'd be lucky to run up on something like that has that been the case for you i mean do you do you think that the majority of your cases have been demonic in nature or the mass majority of them are you know, that's not the case for most of them. Quite the contrary. Uh, collectively, we've, we've thought about it. And what we actually adjudicated is demonic. James has had five such cases, such encounters. I have had five. So that's over a lot of collective years uh, that we actually were pretty convinced that it was demonic. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is rare, as you say, but... But how, how do you determine? How do you... How, tell me the steps you guys make to determine that it is truly a demonic force. If someone has a sense of negativity in their house and things are going wrong and they seem to be on a downward spiral, things, you know, they're just getting a de depression and it's combined with the evidence of the paranormal, then we'd say, okay, that could be demonic. And then we're, we're still not convinced until we thoroughly interview the person yeah. and research their backgrounds. And, uh, Sometimes you just can't explain it as anything but demonic. Now, that's a loaded term. It's still primarily a psychological malady, but you have to address it and treat it as if it's purely demonic mm. at, at times. So uh, if somebody has objects moving around in the house, like a poltergeist is doing it, uh, but that's combined with the person really feeling bad or being terrified of, of their own environment, their own house, and they're seeing perhaps dark figures moving around and writings on the wall. You put together that cauldron and you can say, yeah, I think this is demonic. And, and on top of it, too, is when, when, when you're dealing with people and they're claiming possession, um, you know, Carl and I both tend to, especially if we ever get the church involved and, and some, it could be many different churches, but, you know, if they're claiming possession, we know we, we, we ask them and we kind of have to make them get psychological and uh, psychological evaluation, get a physician visit to get a makeup of what's going on, because we really want to uh, check off all the natural boxes off first. And like, even though he said a lot of it is rooted in psychological trauma, 
that doesn't mean that there's something that can't be outwardly uh, that comes from a paranormal sense, because there are things still that are unexplainable, but we want to try to ex- explain the explained and then, d- then deal with the unknown. And sometimes the unknown is never there. It's what's misunderstood within their human body or, or their mind. Yes. And it's interesting. James mentioned trauma, past trauma. In every case we've encountered, we've, you know, evaluated as being demonic. There was some seriously unresolved conflict or past trauma that is surfacing at the time that they are, they experience the demon. It's concurrent. And even James, this is a lead into demonology. James had some, some trauma in his early life. Mm-hmm. You see, the planet he came from exploded, you know, and then, of course, he made his way to Earth, and their son died, and, you know, Bob just I'm not Superman. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> exaggerating there. But, yeah, but James did have some really uh, harrowing moments in his younger years, and it, it caused him to question, you know, does God have a place in his life? Does God even exist? Can we petition God? But that led him, I think that was the primary influence that led him to what he does now, and to demonize, because he became interested and obsessed with finding out who is, you know, who's in charge. Is, does God have a plan for us? So, and uh, that's it in a nutshell. Well, let me tell you this. Um, I've interviewed one uh, Catholic priest who dealt with the, um, I think it's Latoya Amon's uh, case out of Illinois, Father Michael Maggio. Um, I had to beg him to be on the show. He didn't want to talk about it. And I think, but I think he was doing some things as far as like maybe making it into a television program, maybe. Um, but anyway, he told me that in trying to determine why this happened and it, and, and what was happening was the mother was possessed and all three of the kids were possessed. The grandmother lived there too, but these things weren't happening to her. Okay. And he said that he initially got the call to come to the hospital in a hurry because the nurse had witnessed the little boy walking up the wall Mm. up to the ceiling and then dropping down to his feet. He was probably like eight or nine years old. He was holding his mamaw's hand when he, when he did that. So they called him in a panic and told him to get down there. And he said that they had uh, witnessed some unbelievable phenomena in that hospital. But at looking at why it was happening, he found out that the little boy was being molested by a boyfriend. The past boyfriend wasn't his father. And that, he said, could open up a like a... Um, a portal, I guess, for these entities to come through and possess people. He he feels that's what it was. He witnessed some very powerful and strange paranormal phenomena, you know, himself. But have you guys uh, witnessed that? I think the answer to that question is going to be yes and yes. Uh, James, would you like to start? Yeah, no, definitely. I would say yes. I've never seen levitation, but what I have seen, I have seen, of course, the body change. I've seen the face triangulate where the cheekbones started to point out in structure. Um, I have seen uh, two men that were bouncers over 300 pounds be man, be basically manhandled by this 22-year-old um, was where, where he was able to dislocate his shoulder and still able to grab me during a, a prayer of deliverance. Um, you know, in that same case, uh, you know, there was a shadow uh, entity that came out of the closet and grabbed um, the woman that was a part of this case investigating, um, who was a psychologist, is a psychologist, and investigators seen her being pulled towards the closet 
Um, as far as far as also, uh, I have had a prolific nightmare where I was involved in a case where my dreams were intruded by. I do believe this um, exterior force, um, this this malevolent entity, where it instilled me killing the family uh, instead of helping the family, and in the same. Uh, ability these physical images and the, the location were all to the, the spitting image of what I had come across when I actually went there. Um, and as far as as well, I have seen um, phenomena such as shadow fig shadow figures being caught on a camera uh, larger than seven foot tall in the case in Lake Cumberland, Rhode Island. Um, but yeah, no, I have come across certain things where uh, people have changed uh, their vocal structures. You know, Tibetan monks have the highest octave range, uh, but you can also uh, deal with these people and um, hear the many different voice changes that occur within their speaking. Um, as well, I had to employ a professor one time in language because um, there was this language being spoken that I could not understand and that didn't correlate to um, any sort of traditional modern language um, or Spanish, French, a lot of the known languages out there. Um, I know Carl has have, uh, as well dealt with uh, certain things that I've never come across um, that I've always found fascinating. So I'll bring I'll, I'll bring Carl on board now because I, I always am still uh, shocked what he experienced. That is one of the things like they'll they'll talk in a language that, you know, they they shouldn't know or they don't know. And so it's just crazy and scary but also um there's a guy a professional a professor in nashville who was playing with an ouija board and he had did he you know he did this for years but it ended up opening up a portal possessing his daughter the story is amazing have you ever talked to someone that's in like a prominent position in society that was possessed um, not necessarily that I know of. I, that all the people that I've dealt with, like uh, Carl and I have stated, have had a traumatic history. Um, maybe didn't have a faith or did have a faith. Um, nobody that was predominant that I've ever come across that I've dealt with. You know, not Tom Cruise never came to me and said uh, I'm possessed or anything like that. I don't think Carl as as well. I don't know. I saw him jumping up and down on the sofa. Yeah. sofa one time. So, <laughs> he was visiting Oprah Winfrey and he jumped up and down. Uh, oh, they rode him hard for that one. Yeah, they rode him hard for that one. He kept chanting, Kitty home, Kitty, Kitty, yeah. Kitty. But I, I want to I wanna add something on that language, the speaking in tongues thing. Uh, it's very misunderstood what that means. It's usually basically speaking in a language you don't understand. But what I will, I will say for people is when you're dealing with something, you have to be careful of what language is being spoken. If it's a dead language, um, then I would be a little bit more cautious and uh, optimistic um, about what's going on because – a lot, some of these languages aren't able to be interpreted by the, the normal individual. Yeah, you can do Google Translate and you can have a kind of a good understanding. But if you hear Latin or French or other languages that are still spoken to this day, then I then I'd be I'd be approaching it differently because people can go get Rosetta Stone and learn languages within a week enough to say certain words and sound like they're yeah. being really meaningful with what they're saying. Like me in Spanish. I can yeah. give an impression so I speak it. So you got to be careful when you're assessing the case. Like you have to make sure like the, the case that I dealt with and what I talk about when I use a profession was Sumerian. Um, and that's not a language you can just pick up a, a book and start, start saying language. We don't really understand 
how it was phonetically spoken, uh, so to say. But, um, you know, I had to reach out to a professor and they were able to kind of say, this is basically uh, the language that was being spoken. So, so, so someone was actually speaking Sumerian. Yeah. You know, I don't speak any Sumerian. No, I just what, don't. What, was this a man, a woman? I'm just curious. Can you tell us a little a bit about the case? It was a man. Yeah, it was a man. Um, it has to do with uh, the, my first case where I was talking about where the individual is uh, basically held down uh, by two people. But um, I don't want to go too much into details. But yeah, no, it was we. It was on audio recorded, um, and of course, we thought it was garble. And I always try to get things assessed because you know I, I'm not I'm not an expert. Well, some people look at me as an expert, but I don't believe I know everything. Uh, I'm not a language specialist. So basically, I, I saw it that route. Um, but not to take too much of the time, I definitely want Carl to uh, uh, tell his stories because, I, like I said, I, found him, I find him fascinating. He's come across some phenomenon um, that I have never seen in my life. Yeah, James at least had the resource of someone who could recognize Sumerian if not totally interpret it. There's only four professors in the country that do know how to understand it. Yeah. Wow. That's a dead language and a remote language. So as far as things I've witnessed, I mean, I could think of three cases and just rattle them off, but uh, I'll start with my initial one. My first residential case that I investigated was that famous house on Rontop Road in Harrisville, Rhode Island, later became the Conjuring House, but that was not qualified as being demonic. It was just scary and irritating. But my second residential case was full-blown demonic possession, and the subject was a 14-year-old boy. And because I had already had experience with uh, darker matters, it seems like I was always being called into the cases nobody else wanted to handle. So I was invited to stay overnight at this, uh, this young man's house. There was a three-story house in Providence, Rhode Island, in the West End. This goes way back to 1980, 1980 into 1981. So I stayed overnight to just observe. I don't know if I was qualified to, but I would do it. And I suppose that this boy was suffering from identity crisis combined with epilepsy, which would give the semblance of being taken over by another personality. But uh, I was uh, sleeping in a, uh, or well, I would have slept. I didn't sleep. I was reclining on a sofa in a room adjacent to his bedroom, and at one in the morning, suddenly I was startled into alertness by a, a blood-curdling scream. It was the boy. He sounded like he was being flayed alive. And I fumbled for the wall switch, turned it on, and the overhead light. Just as I did, this boy's bedroom door opened on its own, moved by an unseen force, and his body was flung out of that room. And his, his form, his whole entire body was spinning around like a dreidel, like a top on the floor. It was whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. He was being propelled against the walls, careening against the walls. And he was screaming all through it. He was seized. He was taken over. But he was still screaming, you know, for help. Uh, I just, of course, I stood there transfixed. What are you going to do? I'd never seen anything like that. And then he did a backwards flip and ended up on the sofa where I was reclining. And he jumped up and down, flapping his hands, and this deep, guttural laughter came out of his throat. <laughs> and 
And like this, I'm thinking, all I can think of was, this just ain't normal. And uh, his parents were alerted by the, and family was alerted by the screaming. They came in, and just as they came in, he looked at me with this glare, and he flew at me. Uh, I tried to restrain him without injuring him. I was my normal 200 pounds. And so I leaned on him. He pushed me right off, flung me off as if I was, you know, a child. And then he came to his senses, but he was panicked and crying, calling for his uncle. So uh, yeah, we decided that the only thing that can be done is an expulsion, a minor form of exorcism. And that took place the next week. And uh, it was a horrendous ordeal, but it was successful, to, to my surprise. And during that uh, expulsion right, or, or uh, procedure, I saw a picture invert itself, a picture of Jesus Christ. I was hoping the boy would look at it. I looked at it, it was on a table. The next time I looked at it, less than a minute later, it had turned itself upside down. It had just done that. I didn't see it flip, but it had turned over. Uh, religious objects started to fly, fall off the walls. They were nailed onto the wall, suspended on the wall. Um, the floor shook when this procedure started, like an earth tremor or a truck going by, but it wasn't that. The floor just groaned. My chair with me seated in it moved all the way back across the room to the wall. And it was one thing after the other after the other. I think this force, whatever it was, poltergeist, demonic, whatever, was trying to scare us so we'd leave the room. It almost succeeded. I had felt at one point I was being taken over, which is not like me. I suddenly felt this onrush of alien emotion, like a terror, panic, and anger. And it was propelling me, whatever this was coming into me, was telling me to jump out the window. You know, just jump out. And uh, I just concentrated on my own sense of myself, and it left me. And it seemed to go, which I felt that coming out of the back of my head, and it seemed to go into a young lady in the room. She fell to the floor and started screaming and pulling her hair out in chunks, handful. And, uh, but, and this went on for about an hour, all these kinds of things. Very grim, very frightening at the time. I wanted to leave. I figured this, go back to my parents' house, there's food in the refrigerator, just forget this stuff. But I also knew if I did that, I might not be able to go into another situation, similar situation again, if I fled there. And it wouldn't inspire confidence in the people I was trying to help. We were trying to help. It was my brother and I were there. And uh, eventually it left this, this young man. And he started approaching me like a Dracula, like Bela Lugosi with a hand out, with that wild look in his eye. And I just, I don't know why, I held up a hand, my right hand, and said, stop. I didn't know what else to say. I said, stop. And he stopped in his tracks. And I went up and put my hand on his shoulder to reassure him. And I wouldn't say I cast out the spirit, but I do think I was instrumental that night. My presence was important. And he wasn't bothered after that. So, wow. And he's only 14. I thought this is going to be going on. No, he was relieved from this. That was a rare, successful case situation. But he had been bothered by that for over a year. If you look at some of these cases, these some of these people have been possessed for a very long time. I think I saw a um, documentary about the Vatican and some of their 
priests or cardinals, whatever you call them, whoever does that exorcism over there, you know, they, it's like a, it's like a regular office visit. <laughs> you think they stay yeah. with it all the time, but they'll go in and he'll do his thing and read the rights and he'll try to do as much as he can. But he said, you can't keep doing it because it's very hard on them. And if he it's can't do it that stressful. time, they'll come back and return and do it again until it's gone. I mean, it's what they do. Yeah, in Rome, in Rome, that is uh, almost commonplace. They're repeat customers. They keep coming yeah, back. Yeah, they keep coming back. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, but it, it's stressful. It takes a chunk out of them every time, I think. And sometimes it's it's resolved. Sometimes it keeps on going, but that's what they keep going. It's like, it's like having a virus and they have to come in and be treated. And that in itself is successful. If that works, if that comes, and he sometimes saves the person, that go for it. It should happen. Right. And there are people, the priests who are Vatican trained in exorcism. Yeah, that is really interesting, too. I wanted to ask James. Um, James, have you dealt with any children? Have I dealt with any yeah, children? Yeah, children, any ch- children, a child being possessed? I, I have not, not like Carl has with a 14 year old boy. What I had dealt with with children was that infestation case in Western Massachusetts where I had that nightmare. But other than that, they were, it was an infestation. They were, they were seeing things and they were talking, but I've never seen a, a possession of a child. Um, and if I did, I would, of course, especially now, uh, handle it differently. I would definitely get the psychiatrist involved with uh, other responsible people to handle that because when you're dealing with children, um, it's totally different than dealing with an adult because, for one, they're child, children, and, of course, the legality issues of it. Um, but I can only imagine uh, Carl's situation with the 14-year-old boy. Um, but no, everybody I've dealt with has probably been the age of 17 and above. But like like Carl said, we've only come across five each. I dealt with three cases of possession, and the other two cases were infestation uh, or into levels of oppression. Um, but so three cases of possession, I've I've seen a rare amount of these cases as Carl has. It's not as common as people think it is. You know, you like, I know people say it's rare, but it's rare. Like I'm currently working on a case in Tennessee right now where I have to applicably say right now I'm in the middle, um, you know, and this person's not claiming they're possessed, but they're willing to go through all the steps. And the last time I dealt with uh, a similar case like this was quite a few years ago, probably even before Carl and I started working together. Um, so it, sometimes they, sometimes they, there, there's big space in between when you deal with these cases. Um, a lot of them are explainable, uh, or there are other uh, nefarious reasons of why this is going. Uh, maybe a negative spirit that is very territorial, um, and I do believe in elementals and other things that uh, you know thought forms and uh, egregores and all these things that have this quite possibility of mimicking um, something demonic or negative or uh, malevolent, and I think that's what we deal with more than so. I like to. Well, a, a word I like to call, I think when we're dealing with people, sometimes we deal with the psychic tantrum uh, of these individuals. And it's felt in, through the ethos uh, of what our people are experiencing. And, you know, if I had to come across a child being possessed, then, of course, um, I would do, do my due diligence. But uh, in this case right now in Tennessee, which I cannot speak of uh, currently um, into full detail, but the, the, the woman is pregnant. Um, and that 
that to me is scary as well, um, it, regardless if it's medical or not. Because if, if it is a, a mental thing, and then, you know, I really am, am somebody that believes in epigenetics. Like, I, I'm a student of psychology. You know, I'm currently in school for psychology to, to, to receive my bachelor's and then hopefully my master's. But um, I really do believe in trauma being passed down to the, the symbiote with the body, you know, the child within yourself. Um, and uh, that's what worries me as well, because if, if this person is so adamant uh, of this being uh, the cause and effect, then if it's really not, then the child might come come out with issues or, uh, you know, mental health issues that'll come um, and develop later in age. So these things concern me because, um, you know, the human mind is very gullible and imaginative sometimes. That's scary. That is an interesting case. Hopefully you you can resolve that for her and maybe you can shoot me an email, James, and let me know how that case wraps up for you. I can get you guys back on to discuss that one. Um, okay, so let's talk about your training. Uh, I don't know of any formal schools. I mean, maybe you can let us know. I don't know about that stuff, but are there any schools or formal training that one could take for uh, demonology or can you discuss you know, your training with us? Well, there will be when we open our school. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, we could say self-taught, but keeping in mind that the material we've read and absorbed is, you know, we didn't write it. So somebody else taught us in that sense. Um, experiential, of course. But uh, I, I am sure there are, there are courses in demonology. I mean, I, I come upon them online every once in a while. But I don't think there's an, hmm. like an accredited course in demonology at this time. You know, you can't get a degree. Well, I don't know. I could be wrong about that. I don't think you can achieve a degree in demonology. Hmm. But there are demonologists who are very, you know, scholastically accomplished. Yeah. yeah. And again, right. just academic demonology and applied demonology. So, no, we didn't go to school for it, except in the sense that we study psychology we're observant. We take notes. Mm. So it's it's experiential, and that is very valuable. Yeah, I, I want to add on that. And he said, and he's correct. There is no technical school for demonology. But what I do tell a lot of people, if you are very uh, feel it, the feeling of being uh, thrusted into the world of demonology, I I do tell people there is a degree you can get, and that degree is the degree of theology. You know, as being somebody that has been ordained uh, in two different churches. And, of course, went through a lot of drudging of theology to the level of associate's level. Um, you know, I will, I will say that theology does cover angiology. Uh, you know, there, there's also Christology, there's homartology, and there's, you know, uh, there's, I believe, seven disciplines of theology that incorporate within that. And, of course, uh, one of the branches of angiology is demonology. So if you really do want to learn a full umbrella of theology, then you will have a little bit of knowledge of demonology. But like Carl said there, that's not the center thought and practice of theology. You have to kind of go down that rabbit hole yourself. But I really do tell a lot of people, if you really want to be accredited uh, or be respected beyond, of course, Carl's respected like his brother because they've been doing this and they've worked with Ed Warren and they've worked with a lineage of other people. And, you know, 
they've also mentored and worked with other people where they got mentored as well and obtained that knowledge from other people. But uh, I would say if you really feel the, the, the need, you know, you can always go get a theology degree. Um, and then, of course, add a psychology degree to it and uh, all these other platforms. But I think the best way is the what way I learned, though. And that's being mentored by somebody like Carl was my first mentor. And then I've been, ha I have had the pleasure to work with many other people that have been qualified or are seen in the eyes of the church as demonologists, like Richard Valdez of the old Catholic church. I've worked with him, um, you know, Ralph Sarchi, um, disciplines of people that came from Ed Warren. And he was, um, in somewhat regards respected by the Roman Catholic Church. They did utilize him on cases, um, even even though he has a bad rap right now. Um, you know, I've, I've gone back in between messages with somebody like Adam Bly, who was uh, a layperson that taught uh, Roman Catholic priests and other priests of Catholicism um, and exorcist demonology, even though he was a lay individual. Adam Bly. Uh, taught classes at the Vatican, and of course he was from Pittsburgh, a uh, diocese of Pittsburgh, um, where he taught uh, exorcist priests and priests in the background of demonology. So there are ways you can do it, uh, of course, where you are respected. But like Carl and I, we both have basically just plunged our noses into a bunch of books, and uh, as you said, the experiences is what with, with what is important, even though not many of the demonic sense that we've had a, a plenty of experience on the outer sense of it, like dealing with other phenomenon where we can say, okay, this is why it's not demonic because these, these don't have, they don't have these characteristics. They don't check these boxes off. And that's how we're able to apply that. And that's, that's enough training for me. You know, I think a lot of it has to be hands-on, especially when it's applied, AKA the word applied, it's an action. Right, right. Totally agree. And um, is there a certain part of the world that you know of where more people are thought to be under some type of demonic oppression that you know about or even part of the United States? Many of the European, I was going to say uh, Western European, but I think it's inclusive of all European countries because it was so long ago established there, those old beliefs, because they were so, you know, in remote times settled. Mm. They've long had it. Any culture has its demonic lore. And I think European countries, Rome, and, uh, you know, certain like Balkans areas, Romania, you know, the, the belief in demons is rather commonplace there. And that's how they call them. They call a spade a spade and then a demon a demon over there. So long ago, yeah, uh, the European countries, more prevalent there. Even uh, enlightened countries such as uh, France and Germany, they have their roots and uh, more remote areas where that is, the belief prevails. Mm. So they're more than America, because America is uh, comparatively new. America has pockets where that's believed, but it's more like individuals and uh, maybe churches, groups, but more, yeah, Europe is definitely the place for belief in demons. Yeah, what, about, I, what, what about your sorry. lifestyle? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, no, ahead. I want to add to that. I just want to say in the United States, I would have to say the South would be a, a kind of a, a ground where people tend to use that. Of course, you see this in Baptist churches, you know, yeah. they have hands and you see the people like kind of having seizures. I would say that'd be a more of an area where in the United States, 
people tend to lean towards that. But I definitely want to uh, pinpoint on Rome real quickly because I'm looking at the book right now. It's one of my favorite books is uh, Father Gabriel Morth, an exorcist tells a story. And Father Gabriel Morth was the chief exorcist for the Vatican or the Roman Catholic Church for, uh, I think, 47 years, if I remember correctly. Um, and it is said that he has done up to 100,000 exorcisms in that time frame. Remember, this was mostly in Europe, mostly in Italy, specifically. So that just shows you the, like, a statistical value because there is nobody in America that has done a even in the past 47 years that has done a hundred thousand exorcisms. Um, I think there's only probably, if I know off the top of my head, maybe a dozen or so that that I specifically know of that were authentic. Um, but of course, there's the few people that everybody hears about. Um, so there, like Carl said, we're more new age over here. We try to look at it in a different. Uh, different kind of microscope where we analyze and analyze it differently. Um, but yeah, Europe, I have to agree with that. But also as well, I want to add African mythologies and uh, Asian cultures as well, Asian uh, like Shintoism and Hinduism. They uh, have a, a deep root in uh, demons as well. Shintoism with Shinigamis like death gods um, and Hinduisms with Azaras. Pretty prolific in, in in those cultures as well. Then the Eastern uh, African mythologies. Uh, that's a whole nother uh, ball of confusion to me. There's so many of them, but they believe in a lot of that as well. So uh, there's many different parts of the countries, uh, the women countries, the world that have uh, their belief systems and uh, and their of course their witch doctors and their demonologists. And even though the cultures are diverse, it's interesting to note and observe. You know when you have video footage of these uh, film of, of people going under possession, it's remarkably similar. The cultures are diverse, but the victims of possession, they, they look the same, be they in, in Central and Southern Africa, uh, in Romania, you know, in, in Italy. What they're going under, they, you know, the shaking, the, the change of personalities, the triangulation of the face, the, the, the eyes rolling back, um, tongue protruding. It looks the same. It looks very similar, culture to culture. It's like they have different, uh, different languages for the diagnoses, but the disease is the same. It, they're very, remarkably similar in their symptoms. That is amazing. Um, what you guys do is, I mean, I find it fascinating. I really do find it fascinating. I want to um, allow you both to tell my listeners where they can find out more information about you or if they need help, if that's something you guys are currently doing, how can they reach out to you for that? Seek us out for consultation and help in various ways. Every every situation is different, predicated upon the individuals. But uh, you can contact us through our website, Duo Demonology. It's spelled the old-fashioned way. I got to follow up on that. It's spelled you know, the King James parlance, you know. D-A-E-M-O-N-O-L-O-G-I-E. Now, our handle, uh, our domain, is demonology.org. You know, so to find us, just put it a search for demonology. But demonology spelled the modern way. D-E-M-O-N-O-L-O-G-Y yeah. dot org. If I say that enough times, I'm going to mess it up. You know, I could rattle it off this time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, Demonology, the modern one, demonology.org. 
James found that, he was quite surprised that it had been snatched up. So demonology.org, we both have Facebook pages, Duo Demonology. Uh, I have a team, a team of two with Elise G. Marco Carlson called Panorama Paranormal. All right, someday I'm going to mess that up too. Mm. Panorama Paranormal. So uh, we're not that hard to find. Yeah, and then uh, Carl L. Johnson on Facebook, and then for myself, James Anito, A-N-N-I-T-T-O, and I'm also a part of a group, so isn't Carl and Elise technically as well, um, PPRI, uh, which is a parapsycholo- parapsychological group out of Canada, uh, mainly Nova Scotia area, and New England, um, and we work together with uh, Dr. Elliot Van Hoosen, and uh, yeah, we, we, we try to kind of dip our hands in many different things and we do a lot of lectures and speaking engagements um at libraries conventions and you know look forward to those which can be found on the website or facebook we'll be at rochester uh new york this weekend and then the following weekend we have an uh, investigation event at 1912 hoover house in waynesboro pennsylvania so you always can catch us and get involved with what we do or learn from us and how, and we might even learn from you. So please come and come check us out. And I would say, are we the ultimate authorities? No. Are we authorities? Yes. Now we're go-to people, go-to guys. Very good. I've really enjoyed this conversation on, and I would love to have you back in the future. Uh, James and Carl, many blessings to both of you guys. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you as well. Our pleasures. Thank you for listening. I invite you to follow my other podcast, Mysterious Radio. Please share this show with others that are interested in the paranormal. I want to give a special thanks to our co-creator and executive producer, Kim Kyle, who brought this show to you today. And working hard behind the scenes, our team of four, I want to thank them as well. I am your host, K-Town. And you're listening to Paranormal Fears. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.